Welcome to another episode of Faculty Forward, the official podcast of the Office of Faculty Development at the Florida State University College of Medicine. I am Dr. Shanifa Tate, Assistant Dean of Faculty Development, and today I have two guests from the FSU College of Medicine. They're going to enlighten us on mentoring the next generation of researchers. First, we have Ms. Suzanne Baker, Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs in Medical Student Research. In this role, she works with our biomedical sciences PhD students, as well as medical students on their research endeavors. She began working on human subjects research projects as an undergrad, and that passion remains today. We also have Mr. Chris Hagemeyer, a biomedical sciences graduate student who works in Dr. Akash Gunjan's lab conducting research on new therapeutics for pediatric brain cancers. Chris is going to share his perspective on good mentoring through his experience as a grad student and a little bit about his research. Welcome to the two of you. Suzanne, let's start with you. Can you tell us briefly about your day-to-day and what you enjoy the most about working with grad students? I've had the pleasure of being with the college for 16 years now and had a number of roles within the college. And I originally became part of the college because of my passion for geriatrics and research. And so this was one of the few colleges in the country that had a department of geriatrics. And so that was really exciting to me. Um, When I moved into this particular role within the Division of Research and Graduate Programs, um, I did so out of interest for research in general, but also wanting to develop further the infrastructure for our medical students to be conducting research. Um, And what I enjoy most about working with our doctoral students, though, is it's a training environment that's a little closer to what I trained in. Um, And I think it's great that our biomedical sciences program is incredibly diverse in the types of subjects that it that it has, unlike a lot of other graduate programs that maybe have very specific focuses. We have, you know, cell biologists to neuroscientists, and they're all in one department. So we have students training across a lot of different disciplines, um, all contributing, though, to biomedical sciences as a broader. Suzanne, would you like to get us started with a couple questions for Chris about his experiences? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, Chris, why don't we start by just sharing with the audience a little bit more about the research that you're doing. If you can kind of just give us a quick overview, and I can ask you to add things if, if I think there's something that we might want to expand on further. Yeah, certainly. So uh, our lab is researching a pediatric brain cancer called DIPG, or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. Uh, this is a devastating disease that remains 100% fatal uh, due to the fact that there's no effective treatment and uh, it's surgically inoperable due to its location in the brainstem. Um, this cancer affects roughly 300 student, or 300 kids in the U.S. per year. Uh, some people don't think that's a lot. However, when you break down these statistics, cancers become the number one cause of disease death in children, and brain cancers become the number one cause of cancer death in children. And DIPG actually causes a majority of these brain cancer deaths. Uh, so it actually has a huge impact uh, despite the low number of cases. Um, and another uh, aspect that I think is often overlooked is the years that are lost uh, when a kid is affected by cancer. Um, you know, it's not the same as somebody that's lived an entire life. And so our lab is committed to using a number of different biochemical and bioinformatic approaches to understanding the mechanisms that underlie this uh, cancer and using small molecule inhibitors as well as combinations of different FDA-approved drugs to see if we can find a novel perspective of treating this cancer. 
Okay, so Chris, you were explaining that um, this is a, a particular type of cancer that is inoperable and is fatal. Can you explain to us a little bit more about why it's inoperable and, and what it looks like? In Yeah, so um, the, the D and DIPG, as I mentioned before, stands to, for diffuse, and, and this cancer pretty much, like I said, diffuses through all of the healthy uh, you know, brain tissue, and so that makes it very difficult to re- you know, get complete removal of the tumor. Additionally, the brainstem is a very sensitive area of your body, and and just the act of uh, surgery in that area is going to cause a lot of uh, inflammation and swelling. Swelling in the brain, as we know, can be uh, very problematic and even uh, even cause death. Um, And so due to that, we are sort of left with uh, less direct approaches, uh, such as radiation and and chemo. So, uh, Chris, thanks for that um brief overview. I'm curious when you joined our program, because as I mentioned, we do have a very interdisciplinary program, um, and you knew you wanted to study biomedical sciences. What what was it or what things got you to the point of either enjoying research so much that you wanted to go to a doctoral program, but then also what led you to Dr. Gungeon's lab? Yeah, so, um, you know, like many scientists had uh, a lot of curiosity growing up as a kid, trying to understand how the, the world worked and why things you know, happened the way that they did. Uh, But I really didn't develop a passion for research until I joined a research lab in my sophomore year of undergraduate. And um, I just really loved the the fruitful environment that it often brought about the way that we could entertain these countless questions uh, for hours on end. And it felt really cool to feel like you were on the frontier of, of science or what we knew as a human race. And Uh, to feel like that you could help further advance that and um, you know and so once I decided that research was uh, a career path that I wanted to pursue and I joined the doctoral program here at biomedical sciences uh, Dr. Kosh Gunjan was actually on my undergraduate thesis committee and so I'd actually already known him uh, through that experience and believe it or not he put me on the hot seat a couple times during my defense Mm -hmm. um, which I actually enjoyed because it it did challenge me Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that if uh, he did that when I was an undergrad, he would definitely challenge me as a graduate student. Um, and as far as the topic of his research, uh, I loved how he incorporated so many areas of science into one, whether it was microscopy, biochemistry, bioinformatics, animal work. Um, I knew that there wasn't any kind of means that we would refuse to go into to, to find answers to our questions. and. Um, Additionally, I really enjoyed the topic of epigenetics. Um, for those of you guys that don't know what epigenetics is, is the way that I break it down is all of your cells in your body have the same exact primary DNA sequence. Um, and so the way that I like to describe that is the hardware of the cell. Um, and so if all of your cells have the same hardware, but some of your cells act and behave very differently, so your liver cells are producing liver enzymes, whereas your brain cells are transmitting signals. And I always thought that was very fascinating how cells knew what to do and had specific jobs, and that's kind of where the software uh, comes into play or what what we call epigenetics. And, um, you know, so understanding more about how these softwares work and uh, more specifically how cancer utilizes it uh, to its advantage. 
Um, and obviously, I, I really like the fact that the research was so translational. Um, yeah, we were exploring new therapeutics that we think could help uh, with these patients that are affected by this disease. And I felt like that would be a big motivator when it came to uh, getting the research done. Excellent. Thank you. So you mentioned that um, you were able to work with Dr. Gundon, um as an undergraduate. And then obviously choosing a lab as a graduate student is probably the most important decision you'll ever make. And so what things did the relationship with Dr. Gunjan as a teacher sort of make you think that that would be the right lab for you? Because every student thrives sometimes under different circumstances. And so I'm curious, what is it about him in particular in terms of his approach that you found most um, appealing as a graduate student? Yeah, um, that's a really important question because I think far too often I see younger grad students make the mistake of not valuing who their faculty mentor is going to be enough and very focused on the research topic, mm -hmm. which is important. But, you know, this is going to be somebody that you're working alongside for the next, you know, five, six, maybe even seven years. Uh, and so if that ends up being a person that you don't respect or you dislike, you know, those are going to be a rough uh, you know, few years, uh, especially when you get late into your, your career. And so um, for me, I was looking for a match, somebody that had similar values to mine, somebody that I felt like uh, brought out the best in me, somebody that gave me that mutual respect, um, you know, that didn't just tell me no, that loved the idea of explaining why I was wrong, uh, which I often was. And, and But I think he always made it feel like I was heard, that there wasn't, you know, he wasn't dismissive. And I felt like that also gave me the best opportunity to, to learn and grow because ultimately a PhD is a, a lot more like an apprenticeship than it is uh, more school. And so this is going to be somebody that you get a majority of your knowledge from. And, and if, you know, they have a natural proclivity to, to share that, then that's going to be a great environment for you to be in. Um, and so he really does have a, a genuine passion for teaching and mentoring students. Uh, it's not just something that he forces himself to do. It's probably something that gets in the way of his other responsibilities sometimes. And, and so I, I try to take advantage of that as much as possible. And he's always in the lab and, and super approachable. And, um, you know, I felt like that was going to be the best environment for me to thrive in. Yeah. I think that um, one of the reasons I asked that, and I think it's really important, as you mentioned, sort of the model is really the idea to develop an independent scientist at the end of this that is a junior colleague that is asking questions that go and build upon a mentor's lab. And so being able to have somebody that will allow you to ask those questions and be open to your questions, be open to your lines of thought um, and how you get from point A to point B and explaining either direction, good or bad, sort of where we were, where you're going with things. I'm curious, you mentioned that he's very approachable. Do you, you have an opportunity, you guys are working together in a lab, usually I don't know, at least five, maybe sometimes seven days a week, depending on um, a lot of hours in the lab together. So how do you, what have you done yourself to sort of put you in the best position to ask questions and to get to, to know the science and get to know the mentor better? Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, being an effective communicator, um, is, is a big thing. So if I may disagree with something that he says, or I think we should go another way, you know, do I have the skills to, to express that opinion in a way that also respects, you know, that they've been doing this way longer than I have. And 99% and of the time are right. 
uh, versus my opinion. And so I think, uh, you know, being able to have those open discussions and and be coming from a, a very good place. And, and like I said, that a, a mutual respect that you guys are going to assume that you're both trying to get something good done, mm-hmm. I think goes a long way. Um, but yeah, that's. Did I definitely answer that question? Yeah, or? it does. And I'm curious, one of those things that you mentioned about being a good communicator in the graduate program, we also have a lot of journal clubs. And so one of the things that students do is participate in a journal club. And I'm curious if the environment of having a journal club where you guys are discussing the most recent science and presenting papers, is that part of what gave you the ability to have those conversations and ask questions that may challenge the work that's being done? Um, I'd also like to just touch briefly on, you know, in your lab, you're learning a lot of different things. And as you mentioned, Dr. Gunjan has a lot of different, he's willing to attack it from all, from all areas. So in terms of the actual scientific skill set, the hands-on work that you do, can you talk a little bit about the different techniques that you guys work with in the lab? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that I started doing was just a lot of, uh, you know, DNA, Western blots, protein work, uh, you know, and then kind of on the side doing some bioinformatics work that was always a part of my research project. I hadn't actually gotten to um, that point in time yet. Uh, we do a lot of therapeutic intervention with our patient-derived cell lines. So these are cells that were extracted from a patient, either biopsy or post-mortem, mm-hmm. and we can actually test the effectiveness of different therapeutics on them um, and measure their survival rate uh, in the presence of those therapeutics. Um, you know, doing a lot of microscopy. So it's like one thing when you're looking at a band on a Western blot and it's like, ah, that's data. And then it's another to really see visually on a microscope what you're, you know, actually researching or or your hypothesis come to sort of uh, reality. And so I really thought that was a cool mix. And and then now we're actually doing, uh, you know, animal work. And, uh, you know, since we are researching therapeutics, uh, a lot of people want to see that be done in animals. And so what we do is we take those uh, patient-derived cell lines and then we transduce them with a, a, a luciferase enzyme, which is actually used in fireflies that make fireflies glow. Or they make fireflies, fireflies glow. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, and so we, we can sort of genetically modify these cancer cells to produce a glowing signal when we administer a substrate called luciferin. And so when we inject these tumors into the mice, um, that's how we're able to monitor the growth is that we can image them. And so the brighter the signal, we indicate more, or uh, the brighter the signal indicates that there's more cells present and therefore it's growing. And so then we administer the therapeutic to the, uh, the mice over a given period of time and monitor the growth of the tumor. And so um, you know, that's sort of like the finish line of the project is is mm-hmm. we've seen it work on all these in vitro experiments and could we actually do this in a living organism? Um, and so I, I think every step of the way is is important to really understanding how these therapeutics work and what it takes to, to develop a new drug. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, always enlightening and exciting for me when I hear about the science that, that's going on, in part because it is, like you said, we're going from that translational, so you see it from you know, the cellular level all the way up to how it actually affects a patient. Um, and I think that that's a really important spectrum to understand, and it's a very large spectrum to understand. So there's a lot of different aspects um, that go into 
developing expertise, not only in the techniques, but also in um, that particular uh, science. So tell me, where do you hope to take this research moving forward? Um, yeah, I think, you know, part of what we're doing, specifically with our uh, FDA-approved drug combinations, is that, you know, if we do find efficacy in these, these combinations, that they could be administered to a patient with a physician recommendation. Um, and so for something like DIPG, where there really isn't any kind of effective treatment, um, you know, we're kind of trying everything at that point. And if we do find something that seems to be promising, I think it would be, you know, a really incredible thing to see is, is see it used in a patient and, and hopefully, you know, maybe not a cure, but, but buy some more time. Um, and that would be a very uh, rewarding aspect of what we do every day. So you have given us quite a bit to think about from the the scientific aspect of it, but also how your experience, it you gave us kind of a window into what an, a budding scientist might join, right? Might. Chris and Suzanne, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And Chris, in summary, could you just let us, in summary, could you describe what a faculty member, what they should keep in mind as they're mentoring future scientists? You told us what worked in your experience. If you had to name three qualities or just certain aspects about your experience that really made it successful for you all these years, what should a faculty member keep in mind when mentoring future scientists? Uh, that's a, a tough question, but um, you know, I think probably one of the most important is it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, mentality when it comes to mentorship. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that I liked about Dr. Gunjan was that he was going to cater to the specific students' needs and goals. Uh, so, you know, I think you really need to understand who your researcher, grad student, or medical student is and, and what their goals are and kind of what they need um, and, and help facilitate to that. You know, so I think it's a two-way street. Grad students are supposed to help their PIs, but PIs are also supposed to help their, their grad students, uh, too. Probably, like, don't clone yourself. Um, you know, I think science is predicated on, on generating new ways of thinking and new ideas, and, and that doesn't happen in an echo chamber. Uh, you know, so if you're, you know, trying to, to get your grad student to think exactly just as you do and you're not inviting them to, you know, approach things from a different uh, view, then I don't think you're doing the, the world of science a favor. And so I think, uh, you know, definitely don't, you know, want to, like I said, clone yourself. Um, and then third one, uh, it's tough. I mean. Well, you spoke about the communication. That yeah. just really rung out for me. Yeah, I mean, definitely communication. Uh, that's a really crucial aspect to any kind of good relationship, whether it's family, friends, mentor, uh, 
you know, understanding what the expectations are. That was that was one thing that I liked, you know, when I talked about the approachability of, of Dr. Gunjin. Like, I had no problem just going to him and telling him, I'm burned out, I'm tired, but I'm still not putting in enough work. It's, I, I don't know what to do and, and maybe not having the answer, but, but feeling comfortable enough to confide in him and, and you know, get advice on, on how I can do better. Um, you know, understanding what, goals are when it comes to papers, publications, authorships. Uh, those are all really important elements. I know some students sometimes get blindsided when they're getting ready to graduate and then their PI is like, well, I was kind of hoping you'd have another publication at this point or something like that. And then frustration kicks in. Um, so having that idea of the uh, expectations ahead of time is is huge. And that all starts with communication. Um, you know, we don't have weekly lab meetings that often. Uh, but that's simply because we have one-on-ones mm-hmm. pretty much almost every day and, you know, just kind of checking in and, you know, there's not any time that I haven't felt like I was in the dark or that, you know, I had no idea what was going on. And, um, you know, I think that made it a lot easier to, to get through grad school. Yeah. I think it, I think, you know, what you're touching on is just how to individualize, um, mentoring and monitoring of understanding that learners are not all the same. They may you may have to try some technique with somebody else that you don't necessarily have to use with another student, and I think that is important for mentors to understand that again you do have to individualize um, your teaching skills um, with students, whether that's medical students or doctoral students. And I think the shared understanding of expectations is really key. Like a lot of times we get into you know. Uh, it's more challenging for students as well as faculty when the expectation wasn't clear in the first place. And sometimes that clarification up front can create and reduce a lot of frustration on both sides. Um, and so I think that individualization, the setting up of the expectations, making sure that's a shared expectation, and then providing you the opportunity to ask questions, to not feel like there's a silly question to ask, to potentially approach something differently than maybe that would be the standard or something that, you know, you're thinking about how they get from A to B. I think one of the things that I see oftentimes is we have a lot of brilliant faculty and they can jump from A to B and what went in between seems to go unstated and the learner is supposed to somehow figure out how they got to B. But they got to B because they're very experienced, either practitioners, scientists. They don't have to think about how they got there, but they do have to teach learners how they got there. So it's that stopping at a certain point and learning to back up and put it together so that they're able to follow through with that line of questioning or that um, way of you know treating a patient, et cetera, um, are all really important. So I think, Chris, I think you hit that totally on the head in terms of you know individualization, individualization, the opportunity to ask questions and shared expectations. Definitely given the faculty who are listening something to consider as they go about mentoring the next generation of researchers. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Chris, for your time. Thank you for having us.